0: I know exactly what you're thinking, or at least what you were thinking before you clicked play. You were thinking, boy, this episode sounds super dry. But let me tell you, it's not. It's really not. Now, I'll be honest, it was going to be, but it isn't. I actually reached out to several neurosurgeons who have written extensively on the topic just to make it more of a discussion, but nobody returned my calls. So, you and I will cover the basic physiology you should know when you're seeing a patient with a cord problem, and in particular for today's episode, why you should know about urinary dysfunction. Whenever I'm seeing a patient in the emergency room with new acute or rapidly progressive lower extremity paraparasis, the first thing that comes to my mind is, does this patient have a spinal cord problem or a peripheral nerve problem? The second thing that comes to my mind is, Jesus, I hope they don't have a spinal cord problem. And the third, it's totally not a stroke. At least not a stroke in the brain. That would be extremely unlikely, but I guess it's possible with a basilar or basilar perforator occlusion, or even a ridiculously rare case of an azygous anterior cerebral artery infarction. In that instance, the two ACA branches both originate off a common A1 segment from a single internal carotid artery, So, occluding that A1 segment would infarct both ACA branches, causing bilateral lower extremity weakness. But we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about the spinal cord. And in particular, what is the catheter doing there? Welcome back to Brainwaves, I'm Jim Siegler. Today, the physiology and pathophysiology of urinary dysfunction from spinal cord disease and why, as a neurologist or emergency medicine physician, you just can't avoid it. Get it? Avoid it? Okay, moving on. So the reason I decided to produce an episode on this theme stemmed from an experience I had as a senior resident, getting called from a junior resident about a patient in the emergency room. Hey, how's it going? I don't remember the details exactly, something about a guy or a girl in a place doing a thing, and then all of a sudden the patient's legs went weak, The patient went from normal standing, walking, talking, to being unable to stand unsupported, and now they could barely flex their hips. And this has to be horrifying, both for the patient and the physician who's evaluating that patient. And you, as the listener, you've no idea from this basic story where the lesion is, what's causing it, or how to treat it. But, aha, you call your senior resident or your neurology consultant and you talk it out. And being the more experienced physician that I felt I was at the time, I asked the junior resident, does the patient have any incontinence or urinary retention? Now, any medical student can tell you that this question is used to specifically rule in or out a spinal cord process or a cauda process. But here's what got me. The resident in the ED replied, which one is worse? Meaning, is urinary incontinence worse than urinary retention? Or is retention the more concerning feature that indicates a spinal cord dysfunction? At the time, I really couldn't give a good answer. I think I made up something about detrusor and rectal pressure sensors and the parasympathetic nerve dysfunction, if only to sound smart, and if only to sound like the confident senior resident on the other end of the phone. But I have no doubt now that I wasn't fooling anybody. I had no idea what I was talking about. So today, I'm going to right that wrong and we're going to review this anatomy and physiology. So we can get to the bottom of why you ask about retention and incontinence when a patient comes in with acute or progressive leg weakness. The answer begins with the two basic functions of bladder control, emptying and retention. Briefly, bladder emptying, or voiding, is mediated by spontaneous involuntary relaxation of the internal urinary sphincter once the bladder has filled but there's a backup system in place that's under voluntary control to maintain urinary continence, and this relies on somatic innervation of the external urinary sphincter. Some have said that this pathway permits you a sort of social control to your continence. There also must be involuntary contraction of the bladder detrusor muscles in order to void, and you need both of these functions to coordinate their activities simultaneously, or else the bladder will fail to empty. So, as you might expect, the failure of these sympathetic, parasympathetic, and somatic signals will result in urinary retention. Now, how does this happen in the normal individual? How does urination happen? At small bladder volumes, urinary retention is a normal process, and it takes place unconsciously. We think this level of control relies on a subcortical network, which is probably impaired in conditions like normal pressure hydrocephalus, where incontinence is not uncommon. When the bladder fills with urine, the visceral afferent fibers signal a desire to void that gradually increases in intensity with time. The signal is received by the insular cortex, which is basically the autonomic homunculus of the brain, and it's responsible to some degree for things like blood pressure and heart rate, as well as urination. Now, despite the increasing sensation as your bladder fills in normal individuals, The voiding reflex does not occur unless it would be emotionally safe and socially appropriate. So the nervous system requires more somatic or voluntary control of bladder and urethral function in order to prevent spontaneous urination. Collectively, these autonomic and somatic pathways converge into what's known as the guarding reflex, guarding you from an embarrassing consequence of drinking too much coffee. And it shouldn't surprise you that there's a delay in the maturation of these higher pontine and suprapontine centers for voluntary control of urination. It takes toddlers several years before they can master this task. (laughs) Now that you know this, especially that bit about the toddlers, let's get back to our adult patient, the one who presented with a possible spinal cord problem. When there's a spinal cord injury rostral to the lumbosacral level, technically meaning an upper motor neuron lesion, there's a loss of voluntary and involuntary supraspinal control of urination, which is mediated by the supplementary and primary motor cortices, pontine micturition center, and others. And when this injury occurs, it leads to an areflexic acontractile bladder. Early on, this means urinary retention, and it's almost indistinguishable from a cotta Aquina syndrome. And a fun fact, going back in history, acute urinary retention and post-renal azotemia were the leading causes of death following acute spinal cord injury, even throughout most of the recent world wars. Clinically, this period of spinal shock typically lasts 6 to 12 weeks. However, cases up to 12 months of spinal shock have also been reported. After this period, the lumbosacral sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways take over full control of bladder function, resulting in bladder overactivity, meaning a purely reflexic bladder. Eurodynamic studies can be used to confirm this. Essentially the process is this. Following hydration, the bladder distends with urine, the lumbosacral cord recognizes there's a full bladder, a critical threshold is reached, and voila! Spontaneous and uncontrollable bladder emptying. Anticholinergics like oxybutynin and tilteridine can often be used for symptomatic management in suprasacral cord injuries, but they're often not that effective. Furthermore, and even more problematic for these patients, when voiding occurs, it's often incomplete, given that there is simultaneous activation of the urethral sphincter and bladder detrusor muscles, both of which are under autonomic control. You could say it takes a bit of voluntary muscle contraction to squeeze out those last few drops. This phenomenon is called detrusor sphincter dyssynergia, and it underscores why patients with spinal cord injury and urinary incontinence develop frequent urinary tract infections. What I learned here in preparing this talk is that it may not be the frequent catheterizations that account for UTIs, but actually the chronic overdistension of the bladder. Studies have shown that bladder overdistension results in bladder wall ischemia, leading to muscle breakdown. So it follows that as long as you maintain a bladder at a normal volume with frequent intermittent catheterization, you should be able to prevent UTIs. And that's why you ask about urinary control in suspected spinal cord injury. Acutely, there can be urinary retention due to bladder areflexia. And chronically, the loss of voluntary signaling results in a purely reflexic bladder, with spontaneous voiding. These patients often require intermittent catheterization, or they may even have a suprapubic catheter in place. Now you know. That wraps it up this week. For more information on the topic, I'll refer any interested listener to the nearly 140-page manuscript by Grote and colleagues, which I posted on our website at brainwaves.me. This paper covers neural control of continents from top to, dare I say, bottom. Anyway, I definitely did not make time to review all the material that was covered in that article, or in the several chapters or books out there on this subject. One day I'll have to do a show on the caudic quina and conus medullaris syndromes, which are also very important and they're critical to distinguish when you're encountering a patient who presents with acute lower extremity symptoms. We also didn't talk in detail about the insular control of autonomic function, the pontine micturition center, or even some of the lesser appreciated neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine, which also play a role in urinary function. For the sake of time in this episode, we stuck to disorders of the spine. I just hope it wasn't too dense for you. As always, let us know what you think about the show by rating us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to Brainwaves. The episode this week was produced by me, Jim Siegler, with some music this week was courtesy of Steve Combs and Andy Cohen. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for listening.